0: It's been a while since so I've been up here. It's good to get to be back. Can you guys hear me? Okay, it s- sounds weird coming out of my. But how you feel, Hannah? Sound okay in the back? Yeah, okay. It just feels weird, but I guess it's just my. All right, I don't know. Okay, <clears throat> um, get out your Bibles. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter seven. Man, as Andrew said, we have come to the last sermon in our Hebrews series for the entire semester. We have, after break, worship night, then a study break. That's it for the year. It's kind of crazy. It's weird to think of all that God has done, the journey that we've gotten to be on, and I will say it has been an honor to get to walk through this difficult but rewarding book with you. Um, As you have seen, hopefully, is that one of the main thrusts of this book was to continually show us that the Old Testament points us to Christ, to see him in his glory, to point to his kingdom. And sometimes this was really, really obvious. This was in prophecy. And other times we saw it in an entire system, like the priesthood. Remember, over and over, talking about the priesthood, the priesthood to show us the ultimate priesthood of Christ. But every once in a while the book of Hebrews, especially in spring semester. We get some really interesting passages, but what we're gonna see is the beauty of the Old Testament in something strange. And tonight's passages, passage is one of those strange passages. If you recall last week, uh, Caleb teed me up, was like, Melchizedek is coming. This is the, I'm sure you guys have been waiting all year for the gospel according to Melchizedek, um, or as you're, it's okay to call him, Mel. Uh, I had a Bible study one time. We went through Melchizedek, and one of the guys in that insisted on calling him Mel. And so, or Melch, if you want to add a CH on there. But we already have a Melch here, so we'll go with either Mel or Melchizedek. But what you're going to see tonight in this strange person with a strange name in a little story in the Old Testament is something that is so important for your journey of studying the Bible and that is this idea. So taking notes, mental notes, something, know this in your pursuit of knowing the word. Something called a Christ type, okay? A Christ type, which is, by definition, a person, a symbol, a thing, an event that foreshadows and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So it's a Christ type. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, you need to have your Christ type goggles on. You need to be Thinking, how does this person, how does this event, how does this tension, how does it get resolved in the person and work of Jesus Christ? These are all over the Old Testament. Um, I wish we had time to go through all of them tonight, but we have a lot of work in Hebrews 7, so we're not going to go there. But I just want you to kind of mentally note that. Just Google it sometime. Just say Christ types in the Old Testament, um, I can't give a guarantee that everything you find on Google, if you Google that, will be good, but it'll give you an idea of these events. Um, Some of you already know these naturally, like the Passover, right? The Passover lamb that was slain so that all the Israelites who were under the blood were passed over um, by the wrath of God. Think about that. That's a Christ type of the gospel, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And so a lot of times you see them, they're really obvious. Sometimes they're more intricate, but you can guarantee that when the New Testament repeats or talks about the Christ type from the Old Testament, you know that it's a biblical Christ type. And so, what you're gonna see tonight, I'm so excited, is that the strange character of Melchizedek, or Mel, what are we going with tonight? Melchizedek or Mel? Mel. I can't do it. Melchizedek <laughs> foreshadows, this is beautiful and points toward Jesus Christ. And this is something, also another phrase to write down in your theological pursuit of building your soul in Christianity. This is something called biblical theology. It takes an idea or a theme and traces it from the Old Covenant, Old Testament, into the New Testament, finding its fulfillment in Christ. And this is not, please hear this, this is not just to give you theological knowledge and make you feel smart, The Bible makes it clear that learning this about the word is meant to make your heart burn in worship. And so as you see a more clear picture of Jesus Christ tonight, what you'll see is a better picture of the gospel. And that's why we do theology. So what we're going to do tonight. Before we get to Hebrews 7, I want to show you the only two times that Melchizedek shows up in the Bible, other than the times that he shows up in, in the book of Hebrews. Then... We'll jump from those texts to Hebrews 7 to see how God himself interprets these strange stories about Melchizedek. Then we will let Hebrews 7 show how Melchizedek points to Christ. And then finally, we'll let the Melchizedek-shaped gospel overwhelm our hearts and minds as we get ready to worship um, together before Thanksgiving break. Sound like a plan? You really have to put some work in. I know it's a hard time of the semester. But if you don't, it's gonna sound like I'm saying a bunch of gibberish and then at the end, reminding you of what Jesus did. I want you to see it, feel it, love it as we see the biblical theology in action tonight, all right? So shake off the distractions. I want you to see it. This is amazing. So summary of the Bible up to the point of Melchizedek. God creates everything. He creates man. We rebel. But in the rebellion, God not only curses Um, Creation as a consequence of man's sin, he has in there a promise and a purpose of redemption. So then we see Noah and the flood, and then eventually we get to Abram, who would eventually be Abraham. These are the promises, if you remember last week, that Caleb was talking about in Hebrews 6. And what God was going to do through this promised people was to create a people that would bless the nations, which ultimately points us to the global glory plan of Jesus in the world. But right in the middle of that, we get Genesis 14. So, boom, there we go. Starting in verse 17. And I'm going to mess up that name, all right? So just be ready. Verse 17. After his, so that's talking about Abraham, or Abram, after his return from the defeat of Shador (laughs) Laomer, no way that's right, but after the defeat of Ched and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And then this is really how random it is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. That should already be weird to you because the priesthood doesn't come officially until Exodus. And so defeat of these kings, It's going out to the valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, this is important for your understanding of this, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Another note, get the picture. So... um, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Abraham, or Abram at the time, gives to Melchizedek. And then verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And then the rest of this passage moves on to Abram's continual interaction with the kings in that region. And so that's it. We have this story of the Bible, a blip of Melchizedek. We learn that he brings out bread and wine. He's the king of Salem. He blesses Abraham Abraham gives him a tenth of everything, and then the narrative moves on. Next time you see it in the Bible is Psalm 110. And this is an epic uh, psalm that shows the glory of the kingdom of Jesus. And if you are paying attention this year, you've seen the author of Hebrews quote this a few times to make his case that Jesus is worthy of our worship. So look at Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, and holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse four, here it is. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, we know from Hebrews previously, this is talking about Christ. And so, Jesus is called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is literally a reference from that little narrative happening in Genesis early in the book of Genesis. And then, <laughs> I love the Bible. From these references, the author of Hebrews sees all kinds of gospel glory. You imagine reading this, and he's like, oh, yeah, it's there. And so what we get is an inside look on that work of biblical theology on the person of Melchizedek. So Hebrews 7, hopefully you have your Bibles open. Go ahead and look at at it with me. This is the New Testament inspired commentary of that part of the story of God. Here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, it's a lot. I told you, we gotta do some work here. So what happens in Hebrews 7, this section is explaining the story of Melchizedek before it switches gears and shows how it points to Jesus. So we gotta make sure we're understanding all of that kind of rambling Old Covenant piecing together for us before we see the glory of how it points us to Christ. So look back at verse one with me. For this Melchizedek. So the first thing we notice is the word for. This anchors it in the flow and argument that Caleb ended on last week. If you remember, chapter six, verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So something about the beauty of Melchizedek is to show us that Jesus Christ's priestly work on the cross and in the resurrection will last forever. (coughs) And it is a sure and steadfast, excuse me. It is a sure and steadfast anchor for our, (coughs) excuse me, choking on that. Just getting really emotional about Melchizedek. <clears throat> okay, and this is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Now, I want to back up again in chapter 5 and show you the other two references of Melchizedek in this book. Verse 6 and chapter 5. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where's that from? Psalm 110. so a lot of what God wants us to see in the Melchizedek-shaped gospel is that eternal and final salvation is full and complete for those of us in Christ. Look back at verse one and two, building the whole picture here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, which is a side point. It's weird to see Abraham as a warrior, but clearly that's what's going on in the early part of Genesis. And blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also a king of Salem, that is king of peace. All right, let's wrap it all together. I know that's a lot of a lot of reading. Building the picture of Melchizedek, this is what you have to see. First of all, Melchizedek is a king. He is ruling and reigning. Next, he is a priest, representing God to the people and people to God. The idea of priesthood is sacrifice for sins and forgiveness offered because of the sacrifice. Also, we see that he is a king of righteousness and the king of peace. So the Old Testament is building this picture of Melchizedek that shows that he is the righteous priest king of peace. This is clearly one thing we're supposed to see in this story. And then the other key details we've already mentioned, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham and then Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Look at verse three. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right. Some of these key details are fascinating and they start to represent something of a debate about the nature of Melchizedek. So I'm going to put it out there for you guys. We can talk about it afterwards. Some people would say that Melchizedek is what you call a Christophany. So, another big word I know, but Christophany means it is an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, before he puts on flesh Jesus. So they're saying this random Melchizedek is actually a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, coming to earth. So other people would say That's not it, and you can obviously see the interesting nature of this passage would be ripe for debate, but the reason they would say it's a Christophany is that first part of verse three. He is without father or mother or genealogy, meaning he just kind of appears out of nowhere. He obviously wasn't human whenever he came to visit Abraham, but we have to, I mean, you can decide where you want to land on that, but to me, it's fairly fairly obvious that it's not the pre-incarnate Christ. Mostly because of the second part of verse three. He is without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what this means though, this is so interesting. Genesis is full of genealogies showing, you know, this person had this person had this person all the way down and showing the lines of these giant families. But Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere, It's just, this is happening, oh, and Melchizedek's here, also he brought bread and wine, also he's a priest. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, and then Abraham moved on to his council with the king of Sodom. And so this is amazing. What is happening here is God, in his Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of the passage in Genesis in Hebrews 7, is saying that every detail in the narrative was on purpose, including what was not written. Think about that. It's saying... Because there was no genealogy written in Genesis 14, what the author of Genesis was trying to show us is that Melchizedek was meant to point to Jesus Christ. The Bible is showing us a glory of Christ even by what it doesn't say in Genesis. So, building the picture again. He has no genealogy, has no beginning or end in the story. And these details are meant to show us that he resembles the Son of God In that his priesthood has no end. Then, verses 4 through 10, not gonna read all of that again for you, but this is building, continually building the case about Melchizedek is this, that Abraham gave him a tenth, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and this is a really big deal to Hebrews 7 because of how significant Abraham was and is in the Bible story. And so, with that piece in mind, let me show you other key details in 4 through 10 that continue to build this case. So just in case you were confused by the, you know, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior and Levi himself receiving tithes, let me try to clarify for you. In the Old Covenant, the tribe of Levi were ordained by God to be the priests. Part of their role was to take tithes, or a tenth, from the other Israelites. And that's why it said, though they also descended from Abraham. So the author of Hebrews is reading Genesis and realizing it's strange that Melchizedek received tithes, even though he hadn't descended from the tribe of Levi, mostly because that tribe hadn't started yet, because that doesn't come until later. The main point here is that Melchizedek got tithes from Abraham, and he blessed Abraham. And this shows that Melchizedek was pointing to something that even Abraham himself was pointing to. And then, and I'll admit, this is one of the strangest parts of this, it says that in a mysterious way, Levi, which would be the start of the priesthood, the one who gets the tithes, pays tithes through Abraham because Levi was technically still in Abraham's loin. Now that's strange. That is like saying, because Abraham's children will have children, have children, and have children, will eventually have Levi, the fact that that happened is showing that even Levi, the one who's supposed to get the tithes, was tithing to Melchizedek. Pretty clear so far? Okay, here's the picture, all the details put together. Melchizedek is a king. He's a ruler and reigning. He's a priest representing God to the people and people to God, showing the sacrifice for sins and the forgiveness offered for them. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the righteous priest king of peace. He has no genealogy, no beginning or end in the story. And these details are meant to show us that he resembles the son of God in that his priesthood has no end. <clears throat> Abraham gave him a tenth. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Here's the main point, if you wanna get it all tied up in a summary. These details are trying to show us that the righteous priest king that has no end was worshiped by Abraham. Abraham. The Old Covenant was pointing, not worship, but blessed, um, excuse me, gave tents by Abraham. The Old Covenant was pointing us toward a righteous forever priest, king of peace and righteousness that deserves our worship. Okay, verse 11, it shifts gears. Now to show us where this continues to get ready to point to Christ. So, Look at verse 11 with me. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather, one named after the order of Aaron. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. One major point of Hebrews is to make sure you understand that the law in the Old Testament couldn't save anyone. It just showed them over and over again that they needed to be saved. More of an x-ray than a cure, right? You can break your arm, but if you get an x-ray, all it's gonna show you is that your arm is broken. It's not gonna fix your arm. That's a good lesson even for us now. <clears throat> it's good for us to hear, because anytime we see the righteous demands of God in the Bible, we, can't, we have to know that it can't save us. Christianity is not obeying all these rules and get saved. It is a relationship with a savior. So, <clears throat> Hebrews 7 is saying that because that is true, there needed to be another priest that came after the order of Melchizedek. And so when we see order of Melchizedek, we're supposed to be thinking about the picture we have been building, that it's eternal and forever. So because the old covenant couldn't be perfect, the people of God needed a priest to come from a different line. Not the line of Levi and Aaron, but a different priesthood that lasts forever. So look at verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. I'm so sorry. Man, my throat is like, that's gonna sound really good on the podcast when I keep coughing. So sorry to all thousands of you that are watching this live. Um, Really embarrassed. Okay, verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not Levi, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So, once again, what he's saying is there's a different priesthood that was supposed to come from the line of Judah. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, which means literally because he's in the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's the point? Jesus arises as the true high priest, not because he was a Levite, but because he has power of an indestructible life. What does he ground that in? Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, keep going. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So what is happening here? In all of this difficult, intricate language, what it's showing us is that God did not leave his people without hope. God in his holiness doesn't just look at you and show you your moral weakness and your sin. Please listen to this. God doesn't just give you a law that you can't keep. He does do that. But in that, by his grace, he gives us himself The point of showing law and priesthood, law and priesthood, as confusing and as kind of like mentally exhausting as it can be, was all designed to show you that you can never get to God. He had to come for us. And it's in that hope, the author of Hebrews says, we draw near to God. And I love this next part, especially in light of last week's sermon about God's absolute commitment to keep his promises. Look at verse 20 and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So God swears on himself that Jesus Christ will be our priest forever. This is better than the old covenant, which can never last. Look at verse 23. For the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Saying, these other priests were never perfect. Why? Because they were sinners. And they're sinners, which means what? They die. They can never, ever make whole the people of God. But look at our Savior in verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This priest, though, also died but rose again to live forever. And this means his priestly work will never end. Look at verse 25, it gets better. I love this. Consequently, I love this. Okay, fine. All of this jargon, all of this kind of dense old covenant stuff has a point and this is for us tonight. Consequently, because of these things, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he also lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is beautiful if we have gospel eyes to see it. You need to let the kindling of the strange story of Melchizedek burn into a gospel fire in your heart to see the beauty of the fact that we have a priest that lasts forever. Indestructible priesthood. And just to make sure you come back in 2023, look at chapter 8, verse 1. We're not doing chapter 8. That starts in January. But look, look how it starts in one. Did I put that on the screen? I don't think I did. Nope, look at your Bibles. Chapter eight, verse one. Now the point in what we are saying is this. It's like, that'd be nice, right? Like all this Melchizedek stuff, and it's like, actually, here's the point. But that's in January 2023. So what I want to do for the rest of our short time together it's crazy, the last sermon of this semester is for you to be overwhelmed by the gospel consequences of the fact that Jesus Christ is a priest after the order. Of Melchizedek so let's build the picture of Jesus using verse 25 through 28 here's what we see that Jesus Christ holds the priesthood permanently listen he is the final sacrifice Jesus represents us to God when we're in him by faith he saves you listen to the uttermost <laughs> he always lives to make intercession for you He is holy, he is innocent, he is unstained, he is separated from sinners, he is exalted above the heavens, and he offered himself as the once and for all final sacrifice for sins. And he stands forever for us. So now what I want you to do, hopefully receive this by faith, I want Hebrews 7, the Hebrews 7 gospel, to take aim at your sin and your suffering and your weakness and your struggle do you realize this? No matter what you limped in here with tonight, no matter what, how your life has been marked by darkness this semester, do you realize that Jesus saved you to the uttermost? Completely. At all times, you are saved. And my goodness, if you take anything away from this series or this semester, I just want you to finally and fully believe this. In your sin, the times that you have on purpose, because you loved it, rebelled against God. And I know for some of you, this semester has been filled with spiritual ups and downs. Some of you have almost rebelled completely but sort of hanging on or you keep getting crippled by doubt about God's goodness or your sin or all of the other weaknesses that you might bring into this. Your lack of consistency has discouraged you. You see more of your sin. You don't understand your lack of resolve to fight and do what's best. You did that sin again that you said you would never do again and you promised God you would never do. Listen to me. Jesus has saved you to the utter Most, believe this, he didn't only save you up to the point when you stop sinning, he saved you to the uttermost. He saved you even in your doubt. You are actually free to believe this. He's forgiven your past, no matter how shameful, he has forgiven the sin that you are fighting right now, and he will never stop forgiving because his sacrifice happened once, once and for all. One time, all your sin, forever. You are saved to the uttermost. Listen to me. There are no more threats to your soul. Every enemy that can touch your salvation has been shattered at the cross and resurrection. You are in Christ to the uttermost. He is in you by his spirit. He is your high priest. And how is he able to save you in that way? You realize this? When he saved you, you weren't brought to spiritually neutral and then just left up to you to figure this thing out. You were made a child of God by a priesthood that never ends. So how's he able to do this? Because he makes intercession for you even now. He is proclaiming your freedom and your innocence before the Father because of his very nature and because you have drawn near to him in faith. So listen to me. The Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek, high priest, this is what you are free to do. Take the heaviness to him. Take the anxiety to him. Take the depression to him. Take the lust to him. Take it all to Jesus. Sin or suffering or weakness, he has conquered and will conquer all of it. My goodness, do you realize you are actually saved to the uttermost? And all of these attributes of Jesus, these kind of terrifying, holy, wow, he is unstained and he is perfect, he is separated from sinners, please understand, the enemy is gonna try to convince you that because Jesus is holy, he wants nothing to do with you. That is a lie from hell. If you are in Christ, when you are overwhelmed by guilt, you get to remember that he is innocent and that his innocence is yours. When you're overwhelmed and stained by your sin, you get to remember that he is unstained by sin, and by faith you are in him. When you feel saturated by sin and by sinners around you, you get to remember that he is separate from sin, and you are in him. When you are sunk deep into your own despair, you can remember that he is exalted above the heavens, and by faith you are in him. And when you believe the lie that there's no way that his blood covers that sin, you can remember that his sacrifice was one time for all time and there's nothing left to add to your salvation. This is the power of the gospel for you. This is the thing that if you're a Christian, you get to believe that. Not just that there's nothing in your past that can touch you now. Whatever is plaguing you now in your sin and suffering is defeated. Your salvation, your soul cannot be touched by sin. It can't because you are in Christ. Of course we still sin and let our flesh win, but the sin doesn't touch our faith because it can't beat our Savior. And even if you have slipped all the way and barely made it this year, listen to me, you do not have to earn it back. It's yours right now. You were saved to the uttermost, not to get you almost here and then, well, it's up to you to kind of keep this thing up. Saved, final. After the order of Melchizedek. This life of complete freedom and joy in Christ only comes to those who run from the slavery and misery of sin and rest in Christ by faith in Him. So let's let Hebrews 7 paint the picture one more time before we sing together. The picture of Jesus in the picture of Melchizedek. Here we go. See if you see it. A king a ruler who was reigning, a priest representing God to the people and people to God. Sacrifice for sins, forgiveness is offered. King of righteousness, king of peace, a righteous priest king of peace. Has no beginning or end. All of that meant to show us that his priesthood has no end. Abraham gave a tenth, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, showing us that all of our lives is meant to point to the one who has blessed us in Christ. And that gives way to building the picture of Jesus. He has saved you to the uttermost. He always lives to make intercession for you. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. He offered himself once and for all as the final sacrifice for your sins. And he stands forever for you. And you get that righteousness by faith and you can actually have peace. Either for the hundredth time or for the first time, the call is the same. Come and believe and leave all of it. Go all in with Christ and his kingdom. I'm begging you, we don't know who all's coming back next semester, we don't know if we get to come back next semester, nothing is guaranteed. But I am begging you, do not miss the point of Campus Collective this semester. Do not miss the point of your life. We worship a king who came and lived and died and rose again so that we all might be brought back to God. Do not let the lies win. Don't let your flesh win. Don't let gospel boredom and distraction win. Don't let the suffering and weakness win because they have already lost when Jesus Christ let, left death behind in the grave. And because he was raised to an indestructible life, that salvation and that priesthood in heaven never ends, ever, even when you don't feel like it. So as the band comes back up, I just want to pray for us that in the, glory of Mel- in the glory of the story of Melchizedek, you might be overwhelmed by the fact that these things are actually true of you. You realize this would change everything for you you actually believe not just past forgiveness but power to overcome and a guaranteed future with God forever. It would change the way we live. So let me pray toward that end and then we'll sing. We'll be finished for tonight. Father, we come to you now in the name of Christ knowing that his priesthood is forever, that he's interceding for us right now. Even as we pray, he's praying for us somehow. God, I pray for my friends in this room. That you might overwhelm them with just how far your salvation reaches. That you have saved us to the uttermost. God, only your spirit can open our eyes to that. And so I'm asking now that you would change us, mold us, shape us into people, men and women who believe that fully and let it overflow into a life of sacrificial living with the gospel for your glory alone.